Are you looking for a better way to play player props or daily fantasy sports? Well, look no further than Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the leading over-under daily fantasy game. Why? Because it's so easy to use and win. You can make your picks in under 30 seconds and win up to 10 times your money in one day. Right now, we have a special offer for our viewers and listeners of A Hard Style Podcast. All you got to do is sign up now and use the promo code BACKPACK. PrizePix will match your first deposit up to $100. That's right. They'll match your first deposit up to $100. So, join the over 150,000 others who found a better way to play and download the PrizePix app today. Podcast episode 214. Dexter Henry, Brian Fonseca here. That's somebody's area code 214. That is that is somebody's area code 214. It's a nice number. Brian, how you doing, man? Doing all right, you know. Just 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 trying to make it through everything, but having some fun. I'll say that much. That is that is good. We are going to talk a little bit of basketball. Uh, we have a guest joining us today. He was one of our first guests on this podcast. Good friend of mine. We go way back in terms of reporting um and we actually now work together again uh in a in a capacity uh it's my man ian beckley from sny knicks and nets insider also host of the putback which is a great podcast slash digital show you should check out ian what's up man what's happening guys how are you it's good to be back i would say i want to say too 214 i think is dallas so oh wow There you go. So, a little, little shout out to da- Dallas. Yes, and, it's good. To, it's good to see you, man. And to, to watchers and listeners, this is the longest gap we've had between guest appearances. If you remember, <laughs> if you're an OG listener to Ain't Hard to Sell podcast, Ian Begley was on episode six. So That's we correct. have now we have now finally had him back on. Way <laughs> back, man. What? So wait. Oh man, that's a long gap. That's 208 episodes. Ian. Wow, that was Jeez. late 20 late 2017. Yeah. 2017. So, yes. th- so I had a kid. No, I had a second kid, and that was the real problem. And then COVID. <laughs> so my apologies. Oh, my fault. Look, Ian, you can't let the family hear that uh, it was a problem. We, trust me, you know, you know, I understand. I, 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 I get it. And for both of us, for for shit, I think for me especially, that was like 18 jobs ago. So yeah, yeah we've so feels, <laughs> a lot feels, of moving around since. It was like so long ago. <laughs> yeah, I was doing a completely different couple completely different things there. But um, yeah. <laughs> yes, good sir. to see you. We know you always do fantastic work uh, covering the Knicks and the Nets. We're going to start off talking to you about the Knicks. All right. Beginning of the season, Ian, it was big bomb. Everybody was all in. <laughs> they were happy. You're laughing because it feels like it was so long ago. Everybody was in on the Knicks. Big bomb. We're hyped up. Went from big bomb to everything's wrong. So what went wrong? With the 2021-2022 New York Knicks. What happened? If you start back in the Bing Bong era, which was very short-lived, you know, everybody was excited. They start out 5-1. and And then, you know, you start to see, like, the Kemba Walker, Julius Randle, you know, it wasn't working together that well. And uh, then you look at the defensive issues early on. They start to lose games. Tom Thibodeau then benches Kemba Walker. 
Um, and, you know, we kind of know over the course of the season how it played out from there. But basically, it seemed like a combination to me of the offseason additions of Kemba Walker, Evan Fournier, not working out the way the Knicks had wanted them to. And then Julius Randle not playing to the level he played at last season. And you look at some injuries, right? Let's not forget the injuries. Let's be fair. Nerlens Noel has been in and out uh, of the lineup. Um, so other people have been banged up. Derek Rose obviously injured. So you're taking away significant pieces from last year. These players have been hurt. And it's just a, it's all these issues put together where this team hasn't found consistency all year long. And we're sitting here in late February. And Evan Fournier is talking about on Sunday, uh, you know, confidence issues late in the game and uh, struggling to execute. And we're so far into the season where, you know, it's alarming. I appreciate Evan Fournier's candor. I really do. And it's alarming that the execution issues for this group are still there as we head into March and the final weeks of this NBA season. Yeah, it has been alarming. The Knicks, they've lost the time of this recording is nine out of their last 10. So it has not been good at all. I guess the next thing for me, Ian, is where is this team going from here? You talked about March, right? They're, they're heading this final games of the season was 20, 21, 20 games left, whatever it may be. Is the focus now on developing the young talent that the Knicks have? Or is it, you know, Tibbs kind of always has a focus on still trying to make the playoffs. What, what's the focus for the Knicks right now? Yeah, you know, we've asked Tibbs about it. We tried to kind of pin him down on, on the idea of chasing a play-in spot versus not. And he hasn't been willing to commit to it publicly, which I understand. He said, you know, our focus is on uh, that day, just getting better that day. So he, he doesn't really want to get into whether they're going to keep trying to win or not. But if you look at how they played the last two games, you know that Jericho Sims, the young center, has gotten minutes uh, backing up Mitchell Robinson. And that means Taj Gibson and Nerlens Noel haven't played. So they're at least taking a look uh, at Jericho Sims, the young center. Uh, so that's one young player that's getting time. Will they go all the way there? Will they say, we're starting Miles McBride, we're going to play him 35 minutes. Uh, we're playing Obi Toppin 35 minutes. We're playing Cam Reddish 35 minutes. And we want to do that to give those young players experience over the idea of winning games. I don't know. I don't know if they'll go all the way there. It's not something that I would align with Tom Thibodeau's personality. And also, they have veterans on this team that are under contract for two and three more years. Randall, Fournier, uh, Alec Burks. So uh, it, it's a tough dynamic to navigate in that locker room if you're sitting down those veterans for young players and you're saying, we're not going to compete anymore. Uh, so it's an interesting dynamic. I don't think, though, I'd be a little bit surprised if we got all the way to the point where we're playing those young guys, they're playing those young guys, uh, you know, 35, 38 minutes a night, and the veterans are sitting. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I don't want to say last year was an anomaly, but it's looking that way. And I want both of you to sort of chime in on this, but I looked at last season and thought that it was actually realistic that some of it can carry over, not the entire thing, because I didn't think they'd be a four seed again. But I'm a little surprised, Ian, at the drop off that they have had this year. So do you think that there's something to like maybe them and the Atlanta Hawks, for example, just benefited from all the rest that they had from not being in the bubble? And now we're seeing the lingering effects of like, OK, teams expected what they were going to do this season and have had an easier time shutting down Julius Randle and I guess R.J. Barrett as well up until recently. Like, do you think that they just benefited from all that rest and that's why they had the great season they had and this is closer to uh, who they are or are they perhaps somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I think, Brian, that's a factor, right? It's one of those factors that led to their success last season. 
Uh, they were rested. They had that that mini camp in the offseason. And, and so, you know, they weren't coming off of, uh, you know, a six-week, eight-week layoff, whatever it was for other teams. And, you know, they, they didn't have many COVID issues last season. Fortunately, obviously, other teams dealt with a lot of COVID issues. They didn't have a ton of injury issues. And so a lot of things broke right for them last year. And this year, they've had the injury issues, as we discussed. Um, obviously, you know, COVID uh, not being as big of a factor across the league uh, cancels that out. But, yeah, I think it, part of it is that, but it doesn't tell you the whole story because, you know, this team was led by Julius Randle last year and they played a certain way. They played through Randle uh, by and large on offense. And then this year, you know, you add Kemba Walker, Evan Fournier in the mix. Walker, obviously, to be effective, has the ball in his hands. And so I, I just got the sense that there was never uh, a comfort level that was struck there with Randall and Walker and figuring it out uh, in five-man lineups. And then the defensive issues have been the defensive issues. And I think that if, if you want to say the Knicks maybe weren't as, aren't as good as they were last year, uh, I would agree with that. But I can't, I can't agree with the idea that based on this roster, they're as bad as they had been this year because they're sitting, I believe, in 12th place right now. And that's not, something, not, that's, excuse me, that's not a place that anywhere, anyone would have expected them to be this year uh, given – uh, what they did with the roster and given what they did last season. Yeah, I don't think so either. I thought that they were going to be better. Dexter knows that. Like, I remember when we were picking over-unders and stuff before the season, I definitely had them going over, and I thought that they'd be in the playoffs as opposed to struggling to make the play in. But, like, one of the things that Dexter and I have also talked about up here is, like, since pretty much they drafted him, I have been screaming for them to run more stuff through R.J. Barrett, which we're seeing now, which we've seen lately, and he's doing well. And I feel like Ian... And somebody who he's not on a contract year, but he is playing for a contract extension because he's extension eligible this summer. I think you should see what you have in terms of whether he's a max player, whether he's going to be a great two way player, et cetera, et cetera, because he's shown a lot of tools. He just needs to put it together consistently. And what I was getting frustrated with watching uh, last season a little bit, but particularly this season when Julius Randle struggled is I'm watching RJ Barrett just stand in the corner and not really get the chance to develop. And he's being turned into a spot-up shooter more. And now lately, he's actually been getting the ball, giving the keys to the offense, so to speak. When Julius Randle's off the floor, they're clearly running more stuff through him. So I think that for the Knicks, this, along with playing the young guys in general, should be their focus going forward between now and the end of the regular season. Are we seeing a shift in mentality you know, for that from the Knicks and trying to get the most out of R.J. Barrett to see what they have in him you know, for the rest of the season and beyond? Yeah, what you're saying, Brian, makes a lot of sense because R.J. Barrett's going into an offseason where he can get an extension on his rookie deal. And so if you're the Knicks and you're not playing for wins and losses, I think it behooves you to get a very, very good idea of what R.J. can be in the future. And you do that by putting the ball in his hand. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I don't know specifically if that's been the impetus to what's been happening over the last really month or so, month or so, but particularly last couple of games where the ball is in RJ's hands uh, continuously and he's creating. Um, so it could be the case and it could be them trying to assess, get a better assessment of, of RJ and, and where he could be in the future uh, because of the contract situation. It makes a lot of sense to me. And you, you look at the way that he's been so aggressive uh, the last couple of games, the Miami game, he had 46 Game against Philadelphia, he didn't shoot that well, but still aggressive and decisive uh, with his move, with his moves uh, when he has the ball in his hands, with his first step uh, coming off the dribble. There's not a lot of wasted movement, not a lot of wasted energy, 
and it's been effective. He's been able to get to the paint. So, you know, at the very least, the Knicks are seeing a, a different element with R.J. Barrett here over the last couple of weeks, and they have to like it, regardless of what it means for his future, for his uh, contract negotiations. You have to like that R.J. Barrett's bringing this element to the floor consistently at the moment. Yeah, I've, I've been very impressed with his play recently. He talked about the 46-point performance against Miami. But we talk about the young players playing, Ian, and Brian kind of alluded to this too, right, about the focus, development of R.J. Barrett. Is the Knicks front office and, and Tibbs, are they on the same page? Because they went and traded for Cam Reddish. People want to see him play more. We have seen some of Jericho Sims, which you acknowledge. But are you hearing or getting the feeling that the front office and Tibbs, coaching staff, they're all together on the same page? Yeah, I, I was hearing at least as of a couple of weeks ago, uh, before the All Star break, that there wasn't, they weren't all on the same page. Part of it was the Cam Reddish stuff, the idea that you trade a first round pick and Kevin Knox for Cam Reddish, and then he's not in the rotation when everybody's healthy initially. Now he's playing more after a number of injuries, uh, but I think that was a point of contention at least, or a little bit of a, a discrepancy between the Thibodeau and the front office, and then. Um, beyond that, you know, I was told that uh, there, William Wesley had been in conversations with James Dolan. He was talking about how the coaching uh, was one of the issues uh, with why the Knicks had struggled. And that was taking place, again, before uh, the All-Star break. I don't know if it's still going on. I can't tell you where it is right now. But those are signs to me, at least back then, that everybody wasn't on the same page. Did they get together over the All-Star break and hash things out? I don't know. Uh, but, but certainly the impression uh, outwardly was that everybody was not in lockstep or hasn't been in lockstep over the full course of this season. That is very interesting. So I wanna, I'm going to try to have, I'm trying to do this here, have something for the Knicks fans, glass half full approach here. Okay, Ian, I think there's a world where you can look at it and say, hey, this year's been disappointing, but at the same time, maybe missing out on the playoffs is not the worst thing, right? Because they can get back into the lottery, they can get some talent, maybe they were able to move up in the draft or, or something like that. Do you think this is best for this, where now the focus could be on the development of young players, not making the playoffs, the culture changed last year? Is this maybe not the worst thing in the world and the sky isn't falling uh, for, for Knicks fans? I mean, look, you look at that offseason, this past offseason, right? What, what did you do? You signed Evan Fournier to a deal that's at least three years, so at least two more years. And then the other contracts are more manageable. Alec Burks, uh, next year is guaranteed. Nerlens Noel. Next year is guaranteed. Derrick Rose, next year is guaranteed. But that extra season is not fully guaranteed. So uh, there's still flexibility there. But it just depends on what moves this front office makes moving forward uh, with the players on the roster, with potential trades, potential free agency, the draft. Uh, what are they? How do they move forward with head coach Tom Thibodeau? Uh, is he, do they determine he is the guy for this group moving forward? There's a lot of big decisions to make. Uh, in terms of the sky falling, I don't think you're there yet because of, of that last year. You know, that came out of nowhere, right? 41 wins, making the playoffs. Now, obviously, they've backslid. Now, uh, to me, it's about what happens next, what happens this offseason. Do you bounce back? Do you build a team that's going to compete again uh, immediately next season? I think that's where you look at uh, your answer in terms of whether this thing, in a big picture sense, is going to work or not. There's a couple interesting things that you noted there, Ian. One in particular I'm wondering is, like, it, is it realistic that Tom Thibodeau is not the head coach of the New York Knicks next season? Like, is, is it realistic that this 
even though it's only a two year window, but you know, you've heard year two Tibbs and that being a thing uh, that people are starting to to say on social media and things of that nature. But is, is that possible in a realistic world that he's no longer on the team after this? I mean, I, I'm guessing, right. And I'm guessing based on what has happened and other things, but if the Knicks were going to make a move, uh, and, and replace Tom Thibodeau, it would have happened over the All-Star break, I think, because if you did it then, then you give that interim head coach a couple practices before uh, his first game with the group. Now, then it didn't happen, right? So I, I would assume that part of the evaluation on Tom Thibodeau is ongoing. I mean, if this turns into a, a terrible finish to the season where – you're not fully committed to playing the young guys. You're still playing veterans and, and you're losing the majority of your games. And you haven't, you can't really say, well, we accomplished uh, X, Y, Z because you didn't play young guys and you don't know where they are and you didn't make the playing tournament. Um, to me, that, that puts his seat a little bit warmer. And again, this is me speculating, um, but I, I would assume that things finish out uh, fairly normally. And then, you know, the Knicks do whatever they do in the all season and you give Tom Thibodeau uh, the keys to the car in year three and you see how it goes. And if they struggle early on in 2022, 2023, then I think that all bets are off. And, and then you look at a coaching change. But I would assume right now that he at least will get a chance to coach at the beginning of the season, 2022, 2023, as long as nothing crazy happens between now and the end of the year. But do you think that he would want to if they're going to commit to a rebuild? Like, do you think he would want to stick like if organizationally, if they had their meeting at the end of the year and they said, look, we're going to go younger or we're going to start playing more of the young guys or that's what we want to do philosophically, whatever. And that's the direction we want to go. We want to rebuild. What if Tom Thibodeau was like, all right, that's not what I want to partake in. I'm out of here because I don't want to oversee a rebuild. I want to try and win and win now. And that's probably a response that we would expect. It's possible. It's possible. My question to your question, though, is if you are Leon Rose and you're William Wesley and you're Brock Aller uh, and Scott Perry, I mean, do you have can you make that full pivot to a, like a three, four year rebuild at this point? Uh, you're going into year three. You had success year one. You took a step back in year two. Do you have enough runway to, to do that? Can you pitch Jim Dolan on that? Does that work? I mean, uh, and I don't know if they. Uh, would have interest in it. I don't know if they wouldn't have interest in it. I just wonder, in a big picture sense, do you have enough um, uh, time left on your deal to make that kind of pivot? Because it would be a pretty big pivot. We haven't seen them make that pivot under Leon Rose. So do you have enough leeway to do that? I don't know the answer to that question, but that's where my mind goes. I don't think they should, by the way. I think they should keep the middle. Like I, I, but I'm just wondering. Like I feel like every possibility is on the table at this point. Go ahead, Dex. Every, no, I was going to say everything is on the table <laughs> with the Knicks at this point. As Ian said, and I think they're going to look at all the possibilities. I do think continuity matters to some degree if you can keep it. How much blame do you put for this season, Ian, as somebody who's around the team, looks at the stuff? The fans have put a lot of pressure and blame on Julius Randle. Um, he has clearly had a disappointing season. There's no doubt about that. But how much blame do you put on Randall for the disappointing season and how it correlates with the Knicks' struggles in 2021-2022? Yeah, listen, there's no doubt that his season has led to led in part to where the Knicks are where they are right now. There's no, you can't turn a blinder uh, to that element, to, to Randall uh, not playing to the level he played last year and, ha- having, and that having an impact on the 
win-loss record. But to me, if you if you want to assess blame for this group and what's gone wrong this gone wrong this season, you go all over the place. You go across the board. You go to management and you look at last offseason and you talk about how those moves didn't work out the way that anybody had wanted them to. You look at the coaching staff. You look at Tom Thibodeau. You look at the lineups and the rotations and how they haven't produced the desired results. And, yes, you look at Randall. You look at his season and how it's, it's, it has been uh, not mere really where he was last year, and, and, and you put that on, on his shoulders. And you look at the team collectively, just players not executing defensively, uh, the offense not getting uh, any semblance of uh, flow or continuity over the course of the year. Some of that's on the coaching. Some of it's on the players. So to me, you can't just say, okay, it's Julius Randle's fault that the Knicks are where they are. Or, you know what, it's, it's just Tom Thibodeau's fault that the Knicks are where they are. It's a collective thing that, you know, so many things have to go right to do what the Knicks did last year, win 41 games. And so many things have to go wrong to do what the Knicks are doing right now, uh, sitting, I think, 11 games under 500 here as we turn the calendar to March. Yeah, you're right about that. So I think the last thing on the Knicks before you move over to the Nets real quick, uh, fans are going to want to know how can this team improve this offseason and what do you think are the major area of needs they either need to fix, tweak, or upgrade, Ian, and how do you think they might go about that? Obviously, different ways, free agency, draft, trades, et cetera. We know that. But like, what do you think is the focus for this team in trying to improve and get back to playoff contention or championship contention uh, next season? Yeah, they don't have a lot of uh, – excuse me, they don't have a lot of flexibility. Uh, in terms of what they can do in free agency. They are pretty cap committed. They won't have cap space unless they move off of some of these contracts, some of the players under contract uh, beyond uh, uh, next season or into next season. So you're looking at an off season where unless you swing a big trade to clear salary and uh, you know, no team is going to help you do that without you giving up uh, young players or picks, then you're not going to do anything in free agency. So you've got trades, uh, you've got sign and trade opportunities. You know, Mitchell Robinson, you could, you could do a sign and trade with him. He'll be an unrestricted free agent. Um, there are free agents out there. I mean, Jalen Brunson is a guy who's, to me, I'm going to tie him as a Nick possibility until he retires because he has so many ties <laughs> to the organization. Um, so I think it's, it's via trade and it's via the draft if you're looking at this upcoming offseason. And nothing is going to come easy because those are you know, difficult places to find success in the team building process. Um, but you just don't have a lot of flexibility in terms of free agency at the moment. They really don't. Point guard is going to be one of the areas they absolutely need to upgrade at. Let's talk a little Nets uh, quickly, Ian, because we've got a few more minutes with you. Um, the Nets, what a season, right? They've only won three times in their last 16 games, okay? And all the talk has obviously been about Kyrie, whether he's going to play or not. Kevin Durant's supposed to come back this week. Uh, ben Simmons has yet to make his Nets debut. Uh, can the Nets turn things around you know this is a team that everybody had for championship aspirations obviously a lot has gone on but do you think the Nets can actually turn things around and still be championship contenders you know before the Harden trade I kept saying I don't care what happens during the regular season as long as Kyrie Kevin Durant and Harden are healthy we know that they can turn it on because we saw it last year in the playoffs at Boston series I mean they were dominant and so that's kind of how I looked at it but now it's different right Harden's not here you have Ben Simmons, who is extremely talented, I think can really help the Nets defensively if he's healthy. Um, and I think there's enough for the Nets offensively to kind of overcome where Simmons hurts you on offense. So I think that addition can really catapult them 
Um, if he's healthy, he could really do good things for them on defense. And then, you know, Seth Curry, he's going to knock down shots. We don't know about Joe Harris yet. Um, so I, I do think that there's a pathway for them uh, to contention in the East and to, to end up, um, you know, being there in the Eastern Conference Finals. So much of it is about health. Uh, a lot of it also is obviously about where the mandate goes from here with Kyrie Irving. Is he going to be available for home games in the playoffs? Is he not? Uh, it doesn't sound like anything is changing in the immediate future there. So, you know, there's so many different variables, but I do think you get Simmons back. You're at a place where Kyrie can play at home and Kevin Durant is healthy and your ancillary pieces are healthy. This is a strong, deep roster. And I, and I do think if you get to that place, you can really compete uh, in the Eastern Conference and you can get to the ECF again and maybe get yourself to the finals. Are we alarmed that our peers seem to care more about when Eric Adams talks about Kyrie Irving as opposed to the rising crime in New York City, yes or no? Yeah, I guess. I mean, listen, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, diehard net fans, and I, but there's real-world issues out there. I understand the net fan out there wants to know when Kyrie will be back. I get it. Uh, but I think uh, from, a, from a full uh, humanitarian standpoint, there are other issues to, to keep an eye on. Certainly, Ian, you got two kids, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah I got to think about. These subways have been wilding lately. I heard, I heard somebody who told me they were taking a train recently that somebody was smoking crap on a, tra- a crack on the train through Jeez. a pipe. You know what I mean? Taking it back Crazy. old school, but like, you know, I mean, I'm kind of, I kind of don't care if Kyrie Irving plays again in the grand scheme of things. Like, I, I'm just saying, but I understand just, from a basketball perspective, like, there are some diehard fans who live and die with their teams who really want Kyrie Irving to play home games where he could right now by just getting a needle. So, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna go as far as some people we've seen say that like the Nets fans are suffering here. I'm, I'm with you, Ian. There's a, there's a lot more going on here uh, uh, in, in terms of, you know, human life, just caring about other human beings. How do you think you talked about Ben Simmons, what he can do defensively? How do you think he fits in with this Nets group? I know we haven't seen him. Everybody wants to see him play in Philly on March 10th. I was just talking to some guys from the Inquirer about that, Philadelphia Inquirer, that is. Uh, how do you see him fitting in with this team? And do you feel like he's very integral to them making a deep playoff run if that happens? I do, because uh, if it's going to work for them in that way, if they're going to take that big leap, big step, uh, it's a deep playoff run. Ben Simmons has to be a part of it, right? He has to be a major piece of it. And the, the reason that I think he can help them so much on defense is because, you know, let's say uh, it's a, you're playing Milwaukee or you're playing Miami or you're playing, you know, you name the team, that team's best wing player, right? I think Kevin Durant had defended that player uh, for a decent amount of time last year uh, for the Nets. Now you can put Ben Simmons on that player and you can say to Kevin Durant, hey, you guard player X, you don't have to kill yourself on defense every possession uh, guarding this player. We can save you uh, for the offensive end where you're a genius. So it allows Kevin Durant, I think, to be a little bit more effective, not saying he wasn't effective or doing his job on both ends because he was, but it just makes life a little bit easier for Kevin Durant when you talk about what Ben Simmons can do on the defensive end. So again, I think if everything goes right for the Nets, Simmons is healthy. He's back. Everybody else is healthy. That's how I see Simmons really helping the Nets on defense. Do you think that given how loaded the rest of the Eastern Conference is with Milwaukee, Miami, Boston, who has been coming on as of late, Chicago, et cetera, uh, Philadelphia, who has James Harden and Joel Embiid now, uh, do you think that the Nets, even with Kevin Durant coming back this week, uh, as reported, 
with Kyrie Irving being eligible to play home games potentially at some point, and Ben Simmons is going to come back at some point. Do you think that the Nets have enough time to seriously compete now, even with you know everything I just threw at you, particularly with how good the rest of the Eastern Conference is? Because I feel like every team is flawed. Every team, uh, every team is worthy of being a favorite, but every team is also not unbeatable, especially in the East. So do you feel like the Nets have enough time to build their chemistry and figure it out? Or are they going to be better next season once they have some more things figured out and have a little bit more time together, their stars in particular? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Brian. And it's one that I think we were asking all year last year because Harden <laughs> and Irving and Durant hadn't played much together at all. I think it was like 13 games in the regular season, maybe less. And so then the question going into the postseason was, can you just flip the switch? And we saw them do that, right? Against Again, I'll go back to that series where they just dominated that first round series where all those guys were relatively healthy. And so we saw their ability to flip the switch. Now that's not entirely relevant to this playoff run. Obviously there's no Harden, but I think with Durant and Irving, they have enough uh, high level basketball experience to where they don't need to like get through a regular season together to have the chemistry. So I think they'll be fine. Simmons. I don't know. I, I, I can't say with any real insight other than, you know, he's dealing with a back issue right now, which is not good. He's had such a long layoff. So, you know, there are question marks there. Um, but also from I don't think getting the offensive uh, synchronicity with Simmons, Durant and Irving is, is as imperative as it would have been with Harden. So maybe that makes it a little bit easier for the Nets from a chemistry standpoint. You look at Philly, they also have chemistry issues to work out ahead of the playoffs. It's different. Both of those guys and Bede and Harden are healthy. Um, but I, I think with the Nets, it isn't as much of a hurdle this year as it was last year, and you saw them take care of business last year, even with that hurdle. Well, last last thing for me, um, Ian, is that you know a lot of the talk will be about Kyrie Irving, and we'll see what happens going forward with the mandate. But how imperative is it for him to return full time for the Nets to really have a shot at winning a championship? And if he returns full time. With, as you said, Ben Simmons being that piece that can guard the other team's best wing player and some of the pieces they have around, do you think they can get this done and, you know, hold up the Larry O'Brien trophy come June? Yeah, a lot of it depends on, I think, you know, who they're facing out West when you talk about the finals matchup. But I do think if everybody's healthy, everybody's there, and Kyrie Irving can play home games in the playoffs, I think they have enough to get there. But the Irving question's big because to me, even if you if you have home court advantage, <laughs> that hurts you if you're the Nets, if Kyrie can't play. And right. if you don't have home court advantage, that's great. But also, what about the games when you're home? You have Durant and you have everybody else and you have Ben Simmons. I don't know if that's enough. I mean, it's, it's just it puts them in a really tough spot. That's why I think that there's been so much kind of energy and, and uh, hopefulness from the Nets towards Irving uh, being able to get back on the court for home games. Uh, with the vaccine mandate, again, uh, say what you want about the mandates, not mandates, vaccinated, unvaccinated. We all have opinions, but the Nets, uh, I think, are hopeful and optimistic that you get to a place where Irving can play home games so they don't have to deal with what we're talking about, not having him for half a playoff series. Yeah, we're, we're tired of talking yeah. about it. There's a way they could do that, though, you know? <laughs> like, true. there's a way this could be this 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 a very easy matter. solution. That's <laughs> an easy solution. Yes. It doesn't really – it doesn't get like, talked about enough anymore, and there is like, an easy solution. You're right. I just don't like the vo- – the, 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 I don't know if it's a loud minority of people, but the people who are basically making Kyrie Irving out a victim when he is not a victim yeah. at all in this yeah. situation. It's just as, not. 
as he's his he's choice, said. and he has yeah. to live with it. He's made a choice. I respect his choice. I respect everyone's choice to do anything with the vaccine, without the vaccine. But also there are consequences to it. And these are the consequences for Kyrie Irving right now. I'm I'm fine with that. Like you said, there's an easy way out for him. Ian, that's Ian Begley, SNY. You can see him. We we will do a video on SNY soon. It's coming, Knicks fans. Ian and I will. We can't wait. Ian and I will be talking some Knicks. It's going to come at some point. I'm happy to be part of the SNY team and family. Ian, good seeing you. Uh, please follow him and check out his work covering the Knicks and the Nets. Also check out his show, The Putback with Ian Begley. Uh, I've got Chris Williamson is also on there as well, too. Some also fans and people you've seen on the show as well, too. Ian, good to see you. Keep up the great work. And uh, we will talk soon. Hopefully, some happier news surrounding the Knicks and the Nets. Hopefully. I appreciate you guys, man. I love being here. Let's not make it uh, another 200 episodes until the next one. <laughs> Um, it's great to talk to you guys. Some are always looking for more sports content, and among the glut of sports media, some are looking for sports content that dives a bit deeper and doesn't just stick to sports. So check out Backpack Broadcasting's original long-form sports journalism series, Sideline Stories. The award-winning original series takes viewers directly into underrepresented communities within the world of sports. It's a series that goes beyond traditional sports reporting, like box scores and statistics, presenting exclusive stories that you won't find anywhere else. With a diverse group of correspondents, the series provides interviews and interesting stories around the world of sports, because there is so much beyond the game, and so much that occurs off the field or court that impacts each of us and the world we live in. Giving a voice to athletes, coaches, fans, and everyone involved in athletics, Sideline Stories looks to push sports storytelling further than ever before. It's a winner of the 2020 Independent Shorts Awards, and all episodes of Sideline Stories are available for viewing today on Backpack Broadcasting's YouTube channel and Facebook page. All right, one time for your mind. Got some interesting stuff to talk about this week. Uh, Brian will talk about violence, and I will talk about violence that should not be going on, as many people know, Mm -hmm. that are going on in the eastern part of the world, and how an organization, I was going to say company, but an organization who's known to be a little shady for themselves, actually may have done the right thing, but it came after some public pressure. Brian, what do you have? This involves uh, some news for you with violence about our guest from our previous podcast. To be fair, because uh, you said you said violence that, that uh, what shouldn't have happened. How did you word it? Uh, violence that should not be happening. I was talking violence about... That- I was yeah. obviously talking about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, th- th- this violence should not be happening either because Chris Colbert was an 18 to 1 favorite or, or, or minus 1,800. Or, or minus nobody 3, expected it to happen. Yeah, right. no, one expected, no one expected this to happen either. And now my phone was playing some ad with uh, whatever that was. Um, but yeah, Chris Colbert lost uh, after our interview. And uh, it, was, it, was not, it was not a good loss either. Uh, he he looked bad, and he had told us in our interview that we had with him, which, you know, you can go check it out. I probably wouldn't recommend it because, you know, we had some connection issues and audio issues. Um, hopefully the next time we do interview will be a lot better. But, uh, yeah, uh, he said that he doesn't really watch film, and he probably should have because Hector Luis Garcia took it to him, Dex. Uh, Hector Luis Garcia on Dominican Independence Day Eve, a uh, Dominican boxer who there are not a lot of y'all, you know what I'm saying, in the way that they are with – with Puerto Ricans, for example, uh, but there are some Dominicans coming up, absolutely, and there have been some really good ones, Javier Fortuna being one, for example, and Edwin Rodriguez as well. But Hector Luis Garcia was 14-0 with 10 knockouts prior to this and three no contests, which you don't see very often. 
Uh, I had only seen him box one time prior to that, and it was uh, his last fight against Isaac Avalar, which he won by unanimous decision. I don't even remember. It was probably an undercard on a PBC channel or something along those lines. Uh, but he got this opportunity on a couple weeks notice, right, Dex, as we were talking about. And he came in and figuratively and literally punched Chris Colbert in the mouth and was able to really take it to him in a way that you see once in a while in boxing. These upsets are pretty rare but not rare enough to the point where you never see them and they do happen like you can look i actually recommend this like if you need a good youtube watch you can go look up just random boxing upsets or whatever and the the shock in the arena majority of the time it happens is always pretty (laughs) thrilling i contend that there are no better upsets in sports than in boxing and the reason is an mma and march madness are close behind right and if I was a bigger football guy, I would probably have football in there. But we could throw, like, football in, in the top five or whatever the case may be. But boxing upsets are usually usually pretty sudden or they're, like, just shockingly dominant, right? There's, like, yes. very little in between. So it'll be, like, for example, when – when what's the dude's name? Morrison, the big white heavyweight from the 90s that he was in Rocky. You know who I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm forgetting his name, but he lost to a dude. I think Michael Bent was his name, who was 10, 11 fights into his pro career. He was, was I don't remember if it was Tony Morrison or if I'm confusing him with the author. Uh, so maybe you could look that up. They, they are not the same. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, but basically the point is Tommy Morrison. There you go. See, that's how I almost got Tony. There was, there was a T. Okay. Yes. So he was heavily favored contender etc cetera, etc cetera, went in and just got starched in round one multiple knockouts etc cetera, etc cetera. and it was one of those where it was just shocking to watch happen but it happened in one round you see plenty of those shocking first round knockouts james kirkland was another one where he lost to ishida 22 wins six ko's going before and ishida destroyed him in one round with knockouts the point is that this was a different type of dominant decision victory um, kind of like what we've seen in the past and other examples. And this one, whoo, uh, Chris Colbert was beaten from pillar to post all the way around, didn't have his elusiveness, his speed. You saw flashes of like, you know, what he can do. But Hector Luis Garcia was just somebody who did the preparation, worked really hard, had more heart on that night, which is uh, better overall, beat him to the punch, dominated him, threw him around, it felt like at times. You know, I Dex, I texted you, like, bald fighters, they tend to lead with their head just to move you out of the way. Yes, I was laughing at this. It's a tactic. I've seen Miguel Cotto do it. I've seen Ishe Smith do it. Like, it's a smart tactic. And if I'm bald and get into a fight, you best believe I'm going to use my head a little bit. But he was doing that to just push him around. (laughs) And look, wide decisions. Uh, The the, the judges nailed it. 118-109, 119-108, 118-109, seventh round knockdown. And it's the upset of the year so far, I think, in combat Easily. sports. And the reason why I think boxing upsets are great is also because, like, in MMA, there are so many different variables and more premier fighters have losses. In boxing, it's more, you know, more rare for that to happen. You have guys that are, like, undefeated more often fighting each other, et cetera, et cetera. In MMA, you have guys that are viable in 22 and 5 and shit all the time. And then in uh, March Madness... You know, anything could sort of happen and, there. In the first and second round, anything could happen. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think the thing with boxing that's always interesting to me is, like you said, it's the sneaky ones 
when somebody comes out with a great display of power in the first couple of rounds and they catch somebody or the latter you said, which is you don't get as much, but when, or somebody catches somebody late in a fight where it turns and they really dominate them for three rounds. They steal some rounds late and they were just like, yo, they took the fight. They were the better fighter. This is the rare one where somebody is just dominant from the get go. And I texted Brian about this early in the fight was like, I kind of, Thought Colbert had the strategy of feeling him out and was trying to get him to expand energy, and then he was going to catch him. And then I think by the third round, it was really clear, like, oh, no, he's just getting dominated. And he got dominated, and look, I was rooting for the East Flatbush brother, but he, yeah. did, not, he did not come through with this one. And this was dominant. We got to give you know tip our hat to Mr. Hector Luis Garcia and repping for his people on the eve before Dominican Independence Day. He was dominant. I mean, if you didn't see this, like, it was straight out. I, I had him... I had it 11 to 1 in terms of rounds. This was this is how dominant it was and I agree the, the boxers the, the judges excuse me got it right. Brian said to me if somebody gave I said to Brian if they gave you more than a round I thought they were smoking something yeah. they need to be drug tested. But yeah this was one of these ones where it was dominant and I think it was shocking just how continuously dominant he was. Now, does this mean it's a rap for Colbert? No. no. Will we see how he bounces back from it? Yes, I do want to give him a measure of credit in that he did stand after the after the match, and he did say he the Garcia was the better fighter. He did say he was going to learn from this. It'll be rain to see how he learned from it. But I do respect that he stood up, answered the questions, owned up that he didn't fight good and didn't have it today. And we'll see how he comes back. He put his arm around that man. He wasn't salty. He did not run off to the dressing room. He didn't do any of that. That's something I could see from a young man who said, hey, I took an L. I didn't perform my best, and I'll be back. That's all you can really ask for in, in that yeah. In that uh, in that area, and hopefully, like Brian says, he's you know watching some tape on his opponent now. Yeah, that's the thing. And one loss is not a death sentence in boxing. Nah. It shouldn't be approached that way, especially when you're 25 years old. But he does want to rematch. And if I'm Hector Luis Garcia, for who and for what am I doing that? And, you know, he's he needs to go and yes. try to fight. He's 30 years old. For he needs to go and try to get a title shot. You know what I nah, mean? Nah, nah. Not after yeah, that it, big performance. I heard that. And I'm like, if I, when he said that, I was like, Hector Garcia's got to be like, no. Not, yeah, not, yeah. Not, not, it, was not, so, not it, it was like non-debatable, so one-sided or whatever. But I do think Chris Colbert will be back. Um, a lot of boxers, Errol Spence, uh, Jamel Herring, Shakur Stevenson. We're talking a lot of shit after that. So we'll see. We'll see how that unfolds around uh, the lightweight, uh, super lightweight, uh, super featherweight class, featherweight. just that yep. whole area. Right. And on top of that, I want to say this, like this, this to me, just I always go back to one of my favorite fights ever. Marcos Maidana beating Adrian Broner is the uh, that is the epitome of hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard type of shit, which I think yep. is actually might be a yep. Kevin Durant quote. Um, and for somebody as talented as that to say that, that's important, right? But I do think that we can over not in Chris Colbert's case, this is just a general broad statement. We can sort of overvalue just pure talent sometimes where you need that preparation, you need that discipline, you need heart, you need all those other things. You need to be great on that night. You probably need a little bit of luck also. Let's not ignore that part of it, right? But like that stuff happens every now and again in boxing mm-hmm. and in sports in general. Marcos Maidana beating an Adrian Broner, like that stuff happens where guys you can see that are not as talented as their opponent, they just manage to take them out because they did all the preparation and just worked harder. And I do think that in many cases, whether it's boxing, whether it's basketball, whether it's mixed martial arts, whether it's football, talent, pure talent is simply just not enough. And I don't like when we say like talent wins because I think you need talent 
plus all those other things I'm talking about. In team sports, you need talent plus chemistry, which we'll see, you know, as we progress towards more NBA talk as we get to the playoffs and the finals and things of that nature. So, you know, talent is great, and that's a great thing to have, but you need to have a lot of other things encompassing uh, or just beyond that, right? So I hope that uh, Chris Colbert realizes that so we can come so he can come back and, you know, at, you know, put it all together, so to speak, because he yeah. is entering his prime years. And then we could see a better version of him after this loss. Yeah, look forward to talking to him again uh, as whatever his next fight will be and how he tries to bounce back from that. With so better connection. With better connection. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, get that, we'll get that done. Uh, my, for my one time for your mind this week, um, if you have been under a rock, which I hopefully you have not been, um, you've seen a lot of events in the last couple, in the last week. Uh, in this world with Russia invading Ukraine and the people of Ukraine still, as we record this podcast, defending their home country very bravely, uh, including their, their president and all the sanctions that have come down. And so that, president a lot. Is, that Ukrainian president's a gangster, by the way. I yeah, he's a, listen, I've got a lot. <laughs> listen, I've got a lot of respect for the people, uh, you know, that are leading a country and they're out there with their people in the, in these literally in these streets. Um, to protect their country. And, and shout out, and since we were talking about boxing, shout out to the Klitschko brothers, Vitaly yes. and uh, Vladimir, because they're also out there in the Ukraine. I, and, I, you know, they, they yeah. interested in that whole deal. So, And yeah. look, I, I, obviously, um, I think that on this podcast, we should say that our, our support uh, is is obviously with the, the people of Ukraine defending yep. their democracy and their freedoms. Uh, Rick, really, we talk about that a lot, like hyperbolically, but defending their freedoms as, as they are. And also, the, the, the Russian people that are not for this as well, too. We need to remember mm-hmm. that there are Russian uh, brothers and sisters out there that do not support this as well, too, the invasion I'm talking about by Pew. Now, with that being said, everything that you talk about in terms of politics, I don't think this is politics. This is more of a humanitarian issue. Um, but everything you talk about that affects human beings does have an effect on sports. And... There was no way that what's going on in Ukraine, we've seen athletes come and speak out against it. We've seen athletes use their voice, uh, as, as I thought would be expected here. Um, I did some videos this weekend for the New York Post and SNY talking about, uh, talking about this stuff. We're talking about some news around this. And there was some news around FIFA and what they would do. Shout out to Poland, the Poland Soccer uh, Federation. They came out on Saturday and they said, yo, we're not going to play against the Russian team where they are scheduled to play them in a world cup qualifying match on March 24th in Moscow. They were like, Nope, we're not going to do that. Then the Czech Republic came out and said, we're not going to do that either. They're on the other side of the bracket. So did Sweden saying that they wouldn't do. So all these teams came out and were like, we're not going to do this. And I was sitting there like, okay, what FIFA, what are you going to do now? If anybody knows anything about FIFA, the governing body for international soccer, let's just say they could be a little bit shady. Uh, at at times they have a they have a history of that along with the IOC so you can't necessarily trust everything they do but there was a lot of pressure on them so on Sunday FIFA came out and said that they were going to uh, change how Russia could participate they had to participate under the name uh, RFU the I forgot exactly what that stands for I think it was Russian Federation uh, some something that it stood for so they were competing under that name they could not compete uh, with the name of Russia their country they could not also have flags at any games they were participating in, any matches they were participating in. And in those matches, there could be no spectators in the stand and it would not be on Russian soil. So all this said was interesting. And you got to give credit to Poland, Sweden, and the Czech Republic because they're pretty much saying, 
This is bigger than soccer, football right here. We are not going to participate in this. We are willing, willing, and even a team like, you know, Poland that's been a pretty strong team in the world. We're willing to pretty much say, yeah, we don't care if we don't qualify for the World Cup this year because this is bigger. So a lot of the pressure was on FIFA for this, and I wasn't necessarily sure if FIFA would do the right thing. But right before our recording of this podcast, we got some news about what they would do, and FIFA has decided they are suspending Russia from from the World Cup. And not only that, UEFA, the governing body for European soccer, threw teams out of European competition. This is really huge. Russia won being kicked out of the 2022 World Cup, which is going to be in Qatar this summer. That is really huge. Um, and they issued a joint statement with UEFA to confirm that all Russian national teams and clubs have been suspended until further notice following the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, this could change depending on if Russia decides to pull out of Ukraine or something else happens. So that will be interesting. But there was this growing pressure from not only European nations, um, the IOC, I actually put pressure in here. Um, you know, FIFA, UEFA, they were feeling this this pressure. That semifinal, as I said, uh, for World Cup qualifying was coming up. So that means Spartak Moscow, they've been remo- removed from the Europa League. Um, so they were supposed to play RB Leipzig, a uh, German team that was so they were supposed to play them, and they'll now get a bye headed into the quarterfinal. So this is really interesting, right? And so St. Petersburg also was supposed to be the spot where we saw the Champions League final this year, hoping my Liverpool Reds make it there. Um, and just for note, the name with the Russian football was supposed to play under was the Russian Football Union that they will no longer play on. But this is huge, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to sit here and give FIFA all the credit here because they've acted in irresponsible ways in the past before. But what I will say is, I give a lot of credit to the teams and the organizations that have put pressure on this. And this is absolutely the right thing to do. There's no doubt about this. This is the right thing to do um, in getting Russia up out of there. You're not caring about humanitarian efforts. You're not caring about other people in another country. You don't get to compete on a world stage in the world games. And this doesn't get to happen. So I almost want to say salute to FIFA, but I really want to say salute to the countries that also stood up and said that this is wrong because they're the ones that put the pressure on FIFA, on UEFA, to get something done. And how it played out is interesting because I think FIFA was trying to avoid this, but this was inevitable about where this had to come to. Yeah, Brian. To, to add to that, FIBA World Cup qualifiers, as we mentioned, <clears throat> are currently going on right now. There have been a couple of postponements that I did notice uh, recently yeah. that happened over the weekend, both of which were supposed to be played yesterday with being Sunday because we're recording this on a Monday. Uh, one game I have in front of me right now was Russia versus the Netherlands, which I think mm-hmm. was going to take place in Russia. That was postponed due to the invasion. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's going to be played in, I don't know, at some point, but that part of it doesn't matter. And then, and then the Ukraine was going to play Spain, right? And that's going to be interesting because, like, in basketball right now, Ukraine right now, they're one and two in their group, in Group G. Uh, they're going to probably move on into the second round of qualifiers because North Macedonia is 0-4 right now, so they're struggling. Russia's on top of their group. They're 3-0. and So I'm wondering if there's going to be, like, if they're going to extend that to basketball where Russia's not going to be allowed to compete in the World Cup. The World Cup, by the way, the Women's World Cup, I think, which Russia qualified for, they, and they're drawing for uh, sometime in March, I believe, 
Women's World Cup is going to be later this year, uh, I think in the fall. And then the Men's World Cup for basketball is going to be later in 2023. Yep. Women's World Cup is going to be a little bit after, I believe, soccer is. So, you know, that that's an interesting thing about this, too. And I will also note that there are some athletes. A lot of women's basketball players make a lot of bread in Russia, and they're trying to make their way back. I've seen reports. Shabazz Napier, who's been playing professionally in Russia and who was going to return to his team, he is back now. He left uh, Russia. And, you know, there are some athletes, a lot of athletes that are out there. Jerome Randall, who's somebody who's obviously black, he – uh is on the <laughs> sorry i know i know i know i know i know shouldn't have said obviously there but like you know come on jerome randall <laughs> uh, yeah now, now, now there's, there's some white jerome randall out there that's mad as hell. <laughs> mad as hell. But, but jerome randall uh is a naturalized ukrainian citizen i think i have the term correctly he's somebody who now plays under ukrainian national team and was playing with them in qualifiers and plays professionally out in ukraine there was a story that yahoo since we're on one time for your mind this would, this would be a bonus. There was a story in Yahoo about how family members were telling him because he was featured in this piece. I saw this piece. Telling him to, you know, he has to get out of there get or out. whatever. And, you know, a lot of players who make a lot of bread overseas, because you got to remember, this isn't just NBA, WNBA. A lot of the, most basketball players, they're not making their living in America. They're overseas. And a lot of them play in Europe. And a lot of them are like, yo, don't be playing around with this, you know, with making jokes and memes about this invasion. Like this is serious ass business and this is affecting a lot of lives. So it's not even just the natives. It extends beyond that to people just going there for working purposes and athletes and, you know, people that we've come across, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. I, th- I think that, I think with, on terms of the basketball thing, which I'm glad you brought up the, I think they FIBA has a little bit more time to play with this, but the interesting thing, like you said, is in the qualifying and do they send the message? And obviously, I don't think – well, I'll say in the short term, I don't think the Russian teams will be competing. I expect FIBA to uh, remove them from that. Um, I think they will try to send some sort of strong message in the short term or do similar to what FIFA initially did where they might have to compete under the name, you know, RFU or yeah. RBU or, so, or something, something, something like of that, that nature. Also, but I think I think how it plays out into next year is a lot – we're not going to know because a lot of it is going to depend on what happens, I quite frankly, in the next – couple of days to week or so and how things play out in the ukraine and these these are things that are going to happen and, and listen everybody that's on the russian national teams for this stuff doesn't mean they support what's going on there and you know but this stuff is basketball and football and soccer this is all secondary right now yeah yeah you got people dying because somebody wants to invade somebody else's country which is freaking ridiculous for no reason other than like just you know power greed. hungry and all that shit. power yeah. and greed Power agreed. But, and the last thing I will note, like you mentioned the time frame. So just so people know, this World Cup qualifying window we're in for men's basketball is the second one, and it's supposed to be ending now. The next window is going to be in June, July. So I imagine by then there will be some sort of decision and hopefully an end to what's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now, ultimately. Yeah. So. It all, all, for all these people that don't want politics or things are going in the world affecting your sports. There's no way these things are always intertwined always. and athletes again, shout out to the athletes in those Eastern European countries who use their voice. Cause I thought it was uh, very necessary. Shall I say, say for that. And I'm glad that they did. That's it for this episode of the A Hard to tell podcast episode 214. Big thank you to our guest Ian Begley for joining yes. us. It took him, it took him 208 episodes when he came back. <laughs> He came back. My man, Ian Bentley, uh, who did a, a great job talking to us about the Knicks and Nets. Uh, we have a lot more great stuff. Hit that subscribe button if you're watching 
on the Backpack Broadcasting YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe uh, and check us out on all digital streaming platforms as well and all the promotions we have going on. He's Brian Fonseca. I'm Dexter Henry. Until next time, y'all. Peace.